From the silver screen to the printed page to the woods behind your house, incredible creatures are everywhere. For as long as I can remember, monsters have populated the landscape of my imagination. As a kid, I wanted to learn as much as I could about these legendary figures, and it turns out, I still do. I'm Mark Matsky, and this is Monster Study Group. Welcome back. Today, The Son of Summer continues with a look at a Universal Monster movie that I'm just going to go ahead and say is underrated. It's 1939's Son of Frankenstein. I'm really looking forward to discussing the film since I've gone from initially being pleasantly surprised by it to now thinking it's a bona fide classic. And I'll tell you why I feel that way in just a little bit. First, though, I want to follow up on my Monster Bash news I shared in the last episode. Again, Bash is happening this October, but to correct myself from the last episode, it's taking place October 22nd through the 24th, not the 25th, as I think I may have said in Son of Kong. So it's October 22nd to the 24th, and I'm hopeful that they'll continue the tradition of screening random films on Thursday night, the 21st. I say that because, yes, I pulled the trigger and have made plans to attend the whole thing. A couple things went into that decision. One, I had a paid admission just sitting there that Ron Adams and company were kind enough to honor left over from the COVID cancellation era. And two, the guest list keeps getting better and better. And the name that pushed me over into the yes category, finally, was Pamela Pierce, the daughter of Charles B. Pierce, director of The Legend of Boggy Creek. Now, I've met Pamela Pierce once before, briefly, at the International Cryptozoology Conference in Portland, Maine, but the idea of getting to hopefully see the restored Legend of Boggy Creek as part of a Monster Bash lineup was too good to pass up. I've yet to pick up the restored cut, which may come as a surprise to some of you, but this might be the time to finally do it. Other guests include Hammer Horror Siren Veronica Carlson, Beverly Washburn, who was in Old Yeller, and who appeared in movies and TV shows with the likes of Lon Chaney Jr., Boris Karloff, Lou Costello, and William Shatner, John Russo, who co-wrote Night of the Living Dead, Chris Yeworth, son of the director of The Blob, Dinosaurus, and The 4D Man, and authors Frank Delo Strito, Tom Weaver, and Greg Mank, and there's more besides them. Anyway, it makes me very happy to have this to look forward to, especially so close to Halloween, and who knows, there might end up being a monster study group term paper all about it. Speaking of The Legend of Boggy Creek, I just wanted you to be aware that I was a guest on Monster Kid Radio with Derek M. Cook to talk about that film. It was episode 509, and it's still available on all the podcatchers. I truly enjoyed my conversation with Derek and appreciated him bringing me on, especially since I already contribute weekly beta capsule reviews to the show. Which, by the way, don't look now, but in a couple more months, I will have submitted 50 episode reviews for MKR, which seems very hard to believe. But I love it because it keeps me watching the series regularly, very much in the fashion in which they were originally released. During my conversation with Derek, I was able to devote quite a bit of time to small town monsters, which was great, obviously. And which brings me to something I'm excited to share. I have completed and submitted the text for my second Small Town Monsters book. 
the On the Trail of Companion, which will be mailed out to Kickstarter backers this fall. It is an in-depth amplification of four small town monsters projects. On the Trail of UFOs, the series. On the Trail of Bigfoot, the journey. On the Trail of UFOs, Dark Sky. And On the Trail of Bigfoot, the discovery. There is a lot more that I could say about the book. And if you're that interested, I'd suggest you listen to Monsteropolis, the podcast number 130. We devote a good 15 to 20 minutes on the development of the book. And this project is near and dear to me. Now, if you did not back the Small Town Monsters Kickstarter, all I can tell you is stay tuned. There is talk of making the On the Trail of Companion and our first book, Making Monsters, available somehow, either in print or e-reader editions. A number of things would have to go right for that to happen. But for now, I'm happy to have finished. (laughs) And I hope that at least a few of you listening to this will have the opportunity to read about these films. Thanks to Small Town Monsters, I have seen firsthand the intricate, creative, complicated nature of filmmaking and had the privilege of writing about it. And it really is a marvel. There are so many moving parts when it comes to filmmaking. The bigger the crew, the more hands a project passes through. Some ideas morph and evolve while others remain constant all of which finally becomes a series of moving images on a screen accompanied by synchronized sounds. And a story is told. No matter what film you happen to be watching, there's a story about its production that I bet is as equally fascinating as the one playing out on screen. That is certainly the case with 1939's Son of Frankenstein, a movie that restored the monster picture at Universal Studios, a movie being pieced together almost on the fly, but that became a crucial hit on the strength of strong performances from the lead actors and a commitment to building an unsettling world not quite like our own where a battle is being waged in the heart and mind of the son of Frankenstein. If you're unfamiliar with Son of Frankenstein, here is a brief summary of the plot. Many years have passed since the monster's demise at the close of Bride of Frankenstein. Wolf von Frankenstein, Henry's son, comes to the village of Frankenstein to claim his inheritance, bringing with him his wife and small son. Excited by the new surroundings, they take up residence in the ancestral castle. The villagers, however, are not too keen on having another Frankenstein in their village and show no kindness to the new arrivals. Inspector Krog, the commander of the local constabulary, visits Wolf to assure him of protection in case of need, and also to make sure that the son will not follow in his father's footsteps. The inspector has even more cause for concern than most, for as a boy, he had his arm torn out by the roots by the monster, and he now wears a wooden prosthesis in its place. Wolf, a doctor and scientist like his father, goes to explore the ruined laboratory. There he finds not only the old equipment, but an exposed bubbling sulfur pit, which over the years has risen to a temperature of 800 degrees Fahrenheit. He also encounters Igor, an unwholesome character who years earlier had been hanged for the crime of grave robbing. You see that, asks Igor, pointing to the broken bone which bulges out from his neck. They hanged me once, Frankenstein. They broke my neck. They said I was dead. 
and they cut me down. Igor has found the monster, Henry Frankenstein's creation, and has befriended him, but the creature walks no more. A short time before, while out hunting, the monster was struck by lightning and has since lain in a coma. Igor entreats Wolf to make him better, and his scientific curiosity aroused, Wolf sets about reviving the monster. I, as a man, should destroy him, reasons Wolf, but as a scientist I should do everything in my power to bring him back to conscious life so that the world can study his abnormal functions. That would vindicate my father, and his name would be enshrined among the immortals. The die is cast. Wolf succeeds in reanimating the monster, but Igor has other decidedly unscientific plans for his huge friend. Igor has been using the monster to dispatch those men of the council who had condemned the grave robber to death, and with the creature walking again, Igor resumes his spree of murderous revenge. Meanwhile, the villagers have become more and more suspicious of Wolf and the crates of scientific equipment he's been receiving at the castle. An unruly mob forms outside the castle gates. Inspector Krogh arrives to place Wolf under house arrest, telling him it is for your own protection. But Krogh too is convinced that Wolf is somehow involved in the mysterious deaths plaguing the village, possibly even the revival of the monster. The two men square off matching wits over a game of darts. Later, Wolf goes to confront Igor. When Igor attacks him with a hammer, Wolf shoots, killing the monster's only friend. The monster finds the body of his dead companion and his initial sorrow soon turns to rage. He goes berserk and wrecks the laboratory. In the midst of his rampage, the creature stumbles across a picture book given to him by Wolf's innocent son, Peter, whom the monster had visited earlier via a secret passage. A diabolical plan to take revenge on wolf forms in the monster's misshapen brain. The monster kidnaps Peter, arousing the household, and wolf, Krog, and the servants rush to the laboratory. The monster finds he cannot harm Peter, however, for the boy had been kind to him. When Krog reaches the laboratory, the monster once again rips off Krog's arm, this time his artificial one, and brandishes it above his head while holding little Peter down under his huge boot heel. Krog fires his gun, but the bullets have no effect. Wolf climbs up to the ruined roof, grabs a chain hanging there, and swings out, kicking the monster in the chest and knocking him backwards to fall screaming into the lethal, bubbling sulfur pit. Soon afterwards, Wolf and his family bid farewell to the cheering villagers at the train station. May happiness and peace of mind be restored to you all, says Wolf, before leaving the village of Frankenstein forever. Son of Frankenstein was released on January 13th, 1939, and yes, it was a Friday the 13th. It has an approximate running time of 96 minutes. It was directed and produced by Roland V. Lee with a screenplay by Willis Cooper. Baron von, uh, Baron Wolf von Frankenstein was played by Basil Rathbone, The Monster by Boris Karloff, Igor by Bela Lugosi, Inspector Krogh by Lionel Atwill, Elsa von Frankenstein by Josephine Hutchinson, Peter von Frankenstein by Donnie Dunigan, Amelia was played by Emma Dunn, Benson by Edgar Norton. that Son of Frankenstein has a fascinating production story of its own and here's what I mean by that. After 1936 horror in the movies was on the way out which is hard for a kind of modern 
filmgoers to believe, but it's true. There were problems with censorship and just public tastes were shifting so quickly that not one horror film was released in 37 or 38. Bela Lugosi, for example, had not worked for 15 months prior to his role as Igor in Son of Frankenstein. Toward the end of 1938, things didn't really look like they were going to improve all that much, but then Universal had the idea to re-release the original Dracula and Frankenstein as a double feature. And it did so well that it outgrossed the original's box office receipts in many of the cities in which it played. And that really started a horror revival, beginning with Son of Frankenstein. Now, Universal didn't have that much money to devote to any project. The budget for Son was $250,000 originally. Uh, Roland Lee managed to get a little bit more money thrown into the pot for the film to the tune of about $50,000, but still, that's not a lot of cash to put into something uh, that would end up being a major investment for the studio. And truthfully, a lot of that money went into the actors' pockets, which, as it turns out, was a wise investment after all. Now, this is what I find most interesting. I'm taking this information from Brian Sen's Golden Horrors, an illustrated critical filmography, 1931-39, published by McFarland and Company. He writes, Universal's front office wanted a quick start on Sun. Willis Cooper's original script, however, was deemed unsatisfactory by Lee, who demanded a complete revision. The studio executives would brook no delays, and so Son of Frankenstein was rushed into production without a completed screenplay. Throughout the shoot, rewritten pages of the new script were rushed to the set daily, sometimes mere minutes before the scene was to be shot. Universal eventually paid the price for their haste, since under such difficult circumstances, Lee was unable to keep the cost of pro production from skyrocketing to the final tab of $420,000. In addition, the film ran 19 days over schedule. Lee shot the final scenes for Sun in the early morning hours of Thursday, January 5th, a mere two days before Universal's planned preview date. He goes on to write that the musical score and the recording of that uh, sometimes took on 48 to 50 hour sessions in order to complete it. But despite the cost overruns, it turned out to be money well spent. The popularity of Son of Frankenstein, along with a few other hits, such as W.C. Fields' You Can't Cheat an Honest Man and Bing Crosby's East Side of Heaven, a Universal finally made money. In fact, uh, having been in the red for many years, 1939 saw them add over a million dollars uh, to the plus side, which, as you would imagine, was very important to the studio's survival. So I don't think it's out of line to suggest that Son of Frankenstein had a hand in saving the studio, so to speak. And Universal would teeter on the edge in, uh, in succeeding years, and the comedy duo of Abbott and Costello would go on to perform a, a similar feat for Universal with their pictures, beginning with um, Buck Privates. Their popularity would similarly resurrect the fortunes of Universal Studios that um, seem to be on uh, constantly in a state of peril as far as their survival was concerned. So I just wanted to spend a little bit more time talking about why I think Son of Frankenstein is today perhaps a little bit unheralded or even unknown to casual fans, uh, you know, hardcore, old school monster kids 
know all about Son of Frankenstein, I'm sure, but even so, it can get a little murky with all of the rest of the Frankenstein films just in the universal canon itself. I'm thinking, of course, of films like Ghost of Frankenstein and House of Frankenstein. Uh, the, the stories can get a little bit jumbled even to someone who is, is well-versed in these films. So what really struck me uh, this time through, I watched Son of Frankenstein once to get ready for this particular episode of Monster Study Group, but then I wanted to watch it again because I was so struck by the performances. And that's what I want to really zero in on uh, with the time that we have remaining here. Before I talk about those great performances, though, I just want to say that one of the uh, undeniable excellent features of Son of Frankenstein are the expressionistic sets that are heavily influenced by German expressionism. And that entire style is, is really formed by this extensive use of shadow and light and also... Um, things that seem to be out of proportion, out of normal proportion. You see that right away from the very first glimpses that we get of the Frankenstein castle, the Frankenstein village. Uh, there is both a familiar and an unfamiliar aspect to what we are seeing. And it is expressionistic. It is not meant to be a photoreal documentary style. And that puts us right away, I think, in a frame of mind that what we're about to see is, in a sense, uh, a fairy tale, it is a true fiction. And yet, at the same time, it's meant to chill and scare and terrify and, and make us feel unsettled. And it does an excellent job of doing so. Another thing that I want to say in that regard is that the sound design, which I mentioned before in terms of the musical score, uh, was a, a, a wire-to-wire -wire rush job. Um, this is a movie that I was very surprised by the, the quality of the soundtrack in total. And what I mean by that is I, the first time that I watched Son of Frankenstein to get ready for Monster Study Group, it was either on uh, my tablet or my phone. So as you would imagine, the sound was pretty lacking in that department. The second time that I watched it, though, I put on my modest sound bar and was blown away by the sound quality of both the audio effects and the soundtrack music itself. And an example of that is that it really uh, sort of was a background feature of the film my first time through, that the first third of the film, uh, or at least the first quarter of the film, there is a thunderstorm going on. And if you're watching it on a, a, a phone with a little tiny speaker, you can tell that there's a storm. You can see the lightning through the windows, but you don't really get as much a sense of it as if you're watching it on a larger system, it's inescapable that there is a storm taking place. Uh, the thunder just keeps on pounding and the music really comes more forward in the mix on a good system. And it truly enhances the experience of this film. And I say that because the, the storm and the lightning is not really a background quality of the first quarter of the film or act one, if you will. It is a, a feature, it is a plot point in fact. You know, much is made of the idea that the Frankenstein monster is a son of the lightning. And there's some great dialogue that points that out. That's being spoken by Bela Lugosi's Igor, who we'll talk about a little bit more in a minute. But I say all of that in order to say this, that if you have access to a, a, a good system, good sound system, especially one that might have a subwoofer, then I think that it will really uh, punch up your experience of this movie considerably because that thunderstorm is really rocking in act one. And it just enhances that sense of dread and, and uneasiness, especially that, um, 
that Elsa Frankenstein is feeling at these new surroundings. You're brought right into that with her. The thing that really sets Son of Frankenstein apart, in my opinion, and the thing that makes this more than just one of many Frankenstein movies, but really, I think, elevates it to classic status, is the performance of the four main actors. And they are, of course, Basil Rathbone as Wolf von Frankenstein, Boris Karloff as the monster, Bela Lugosi as Igor, and last but certainly not least, Lionel Atwill as Inspector Krogh. These four turn in great performances that um, I don't think it's overstating it to say that their performance and their interaction with each other at those various points in the script where they're going toe-to-toe make this absolutely worth repeated watching to just revel in the characterization that these four bring to the table. It's just outstanding. And so I'd like to highlight just a few of the, um, the features of each performance, beginning with Basil Rathbone. Uh, Basil Rathbone does, I think, an outstanding job of slowly but surely going from sort of a nervous simmer to just a, a barely concealed sort of uh, of uh, paranoia because he's uh, essentially uh, the, the title of the film is Son of Frankenstein after all and there's a couple ways that that can be read with I, which I think is really fascinating but Son of Frankenstein as the title indicates tells us that the real story of this movie is about him and that is that is actually truly the case the, the story is about, fundamentally, this battle taking place within Wolf von Frankenstein. And the battle is, does he want to be a family man? Does he want to be a good husband and father and a good citizen of his new home? Or does he want to be a scientist who is sort of swept along the same path of self-destruction that his father, Henry Frankenstein, followed. And that's what you see throughout Basil Rathbone's performance. He just expertly turns up the heat, almost scene by scene, where he, he clearly loves and cherishes his family, but already very early on, even in act one, the cracks are starting to show in that he wants to defend his father's good name and he himself as a scientist is curious and wants to follow the evidence wherever it might take him. There's a line of dialogue in that first act that I believe is spoken by his valet Benson and he says something to the effect of, I think you're rather like your father, sir. And that scene is being played out under a larger-than-life painting of Colin Clive's Henry Frankenstein. And throughout that first act, and even midway through act two, Wolf von Frankenstein is not, he's determined not to be a maker of monsters, but he kind of settles on becoming a resuscitator of monsters. And that is all really brought to the forefront in in one of the most extended portions of dialogue uh, that I that I read before in the summary where he's going through this internal struggle and this is at the heart of the film this is the basic conflict and it's within Wolf von Frankenstein himself as a man I should destroy him he even picks up a knife as he's saying those words above the monster but then he gives into his scientific curiosity as well as this drive to glorify his father, you know, on the world scientific stage. And as he makes that decision, he begins to forget about his wife and son. 
and he starts to become increasingly desperate as Krogh closes in on discovering the truth. Now, spoiler alert, oh, it's not really that much of a spoiler since, you know, I shared the complete summary of the story with you, but finally, um, the son of Frankenstein makes his decision. And it's the decision to destroy the monster and save his little son, Peter. But that decision is delayed until the very last possible moment. So you can't help but wonder how, how fully uh, Frankenstein was committed to that decision. But he makes the decision, he follows through on it, and lives with the consequences. That's something that I think I will comment on right here and now, and that is this, that in all of these performances across the board, uh, Rathbone, Karloff Lugosi, and Atwill, there is this great sense of ambiguity that all four of the, the actors really play around with in their roles. Right, I am going to leapfrog um, sort of the, the the characters that you might expect me to talk about next in order to highlight Lionel Atwill's Inspector Krogh. Uh, he just shines. Uh, it, it's hard to talk about people stealing the show in this movie because you really have four actors who are stealing the show from each other scene by scene. But Inspector Krogh is really an indelible character in this film. And, you know, I think nowhere so much as in the scene where he talks about his arm and he, he volunteers the information about how that was ripped from its roots by the monster in the first place. And instead of just being sort of a ghastly story, uh, Atwell is able to make that uh, really sympathetic moment for his character, even as he does all of these eccentric things. Uh, he has a way of utilizing the arm throughout the movie to punctuate his statements, which he does in this case uh, to great effect when he talks about it being torn from the roots and he sends it flying, the, the arm, he, he sends it into a post uh, with a loud thud and it just is incredible. There's another scene where he uh, cleans his monocle by putting it into the fingers of the prosthetic arm as he's talking about um, various subjects. It's just uh, an incredibly nuanced performance, I think. And uh, authors like Greg Mank, for example, say that it just, it gives us a window into Atwill, who really had a love for bizarre things. And if you sort of scratch the surface of his actual life, I think you will discover that is most definitely the case. But here he just, he, he creates this character who, again, there's a, a nuance and an ambivalence to him where, you know, he, he seems very genuine, especially in his interactions with little Peter Frankenstein. Um, now, clearly, on one hand, he's trying to gain access into the Frankenstein household to gather information. But of the characters in the film... Uh, besides the interaction between the monster and Peter, which the good part is left off screen, uh, it's Inspector Krogh who seems to have the warmest relationship with Peter Frankenstein, including his father, who seems fairly distant from the little boy throughout the entire picture. Uh, but I think that's, that's explained within the story itself by the fact that Peter looks up to Inspector Krogh and sees him as a soldier sees him, in fact, as a general. And that plays into Krogh's psychology, I think. Krogh really does, I mean, in his story that he tells about his growing up and what happens to him at the hands of the monster, he says he always wanted to be a soldier. He wanted to have this honorable um, profession. And that was, in a sense, taken away from him by the monster to where he's just the constable in this little backwater community and is doing his best to see that justice is done. But Peter von Frankenstein sees him 
as a general, sees him as somebody worthy of utter respect. And I think that's what Krogh picks up on in this little one. And so he, of all of the main characters on screen, has this real authentic repartee with with Peter, and it gives that character just so much more humanity. Lugosi. Lugosi as Igor. Make, you know, is this... I mean, everybody, of course, is going to start with Dracula. Understandably so. Uh, in many ways, Bela Lugosi is Dracula as far as pop culture is concerned. But this might be the performance of Lugosi's career. And I say that because, number one, it's not Dracula and there's no part of this performance that's reminiscent of Dracula. And many of Lugosi's monogram and Poverty Row um, sort of roles, you know, he's not playing Dracula, but he is. Yeah, he's, in some cases, he's a vampire. In some cases, he's just uh, a mad scientist. But all of them are very suggestive of the Dracula prototype. But Igor is really not that. And it's not even the fact that he is so heavily made up, although I think that helps. But Lugosi just creates somebody different than Dracula. Um, somebody very earthy, somebody very shifty. Uh, Igor has got his own agenda from the beginning to the end. And just his line readings in this movie are incredibly nuanced and in some cases salacious. Uh, there's that one line, if you watch the film, he's talking about Frankenstein's monster and there's this line where he says, he does things for me. And the way that Lugosi delivers that line, there's some very obvious double entendre that's being suggested. And in Mank's book and in Sen's book, who I think is quoting Mank, um, says that the, the, the crew and the cast had a hard time getting through that scene because whenever Lugosi would sell, he does things for me, uh, they would all crack up laughing, including Karloff on the table, uh, made up as Frankenstein's monster. Uh, but that's just sort of the, the genius of this performance is Lugosi is clearly having the time of his life, you know, um, pounding the spot on the side of his neck where it's broken. And um, you know, there's that other line where he is drawing the parallel between a Wolf von Frankenstein and Frankenstein's monster and this idea that they're these sort of perverse brothers. But then he says of the monster, his mother was lightning. And that is just such a marvelous line. Uh, there's so many great lines in this script, which is absolutely incredible given the fact that this script was being turned in day by day instead of polished for months on end. Uh, it, it's a miracle of sorts that the script ended up as, as in, well as it did, it just, but it, it really did. It's a, a, a fantastic script. The thing I think also that is just very modern in Son of Frankenstein with regard to Lugosi's performance is how much he just visually and obviously delights in revenge. That's his whole reason for, for seeing to it that Frankenstein's monster is revived so that he can use him to continue to, to um, do away with those who had consigned him to death by hanging. And that's punctuated by this weird flute that Lugosi as Igor plays uh, while the monster is enacting the revenge that Igor seeks. And so it becomes this very sort of creepy, weird soundtrack to these revenge killings that are going on. And there's no point at which Igor is, is shows any remorse for this at all. Uh, he's just delighting in it. He, he's sitting back, playing his flute, delighting in the chaos that he's sown by having the monster um, wreak revenge on his behalf. And that, that's why I say it's sort of modern in that sense. Now, 
it has paid off, justice is served, and Igor is is shot down. But um, there's we don't ever get a sense that Igor sort of changes his mind about his behavior. And Lugosi just does this marvelous job of showing us someone uh, reveling in evil and anarchy uh, that he is the root cause of. Karloff as the monster. I think anything that you will read or, or come into contact with in a sort of uh, review sort of way about Son of Frankenstein is going to focus on Lugosi's performance when he's grieving the death of Igor. And it absolutely deserves that. The, the scream that Karloff lets out, lets out is bone chilling. And it in fact reappears in other movies from what I understand uh, that, that became um, such a, a feature of Frankenstein's monster. It is, if I didn't mention this already, it is the final time that Karloff appears as Frankenstein's monster. He felt that he had done really all that he could do with the character, and he respected what that character had done for him. And so I think in order to not resent Frankenstein's monster, he said three times is enough. He's given his all to that character. That character's given him so much in return, and he was willing to just let it go at that point. Now, that didn't stop Universal from resuscitating the character, just have it played by different people like uh, Lon Chaney Jr. and Glenn Strange, very famously. But Karloff was done with it, and he leaves the role with an indelible performance, not only with the, the grieving scene over Igor, but also earlier in the film where he approaches Basil Rathbone's uh, Wolf Frankenstein and the two interact and there's a mirror there where the, the monster is looking at himself and then comparing himself to Wolf and Karloff does so much in that scene to show you how the monster is just confused and bewildered and there's this rage bubbling under the surface that then bursts forth at the death of Igor. But in the, the mirror scene, you know, just, you know, trying to grapple with who he is, what he's doing in the world. And why does Wolf look like this aristocrat and this super successful guy? And why does he look like he looks? And you can just see uh, how that's tearing at him. It's just a, a fantastic final performance on Karloff's part and I think he could leave the that particular role with his head held high uh, even though he gets kicked into a sulfur pit at the end also I think it, it what bears uh, just a quick comment is the the absolute chilling nature of the scenes in which the monster, kills off the uh, jury members or the council members, the characters of Neumiller and Lang. Uh, the Neumiller scene is in particular uh, as close to a jump scare as you get in this film where the monster swings out of a tree and grabs Neumiller and then positions him in such a way that he'll get run over by the carriage. It's an incredible. And then the Lang murder is shown completely in shadow in almost pantomime fashion, but it is, it's fast and it's creepy and just e extremely memorable. A lot of uh, debate, I suppose, could be had about the performance uh, and the way that the little Peter character comes off in the film. I don't have a problem with it at all. I There's just something about how uh, the, that character comes across in the film that just it doesn't bother me. And I, I, I'm not going to say I enjoy the performance necessarily because, you know, I, I watch a lot of these movies with the subtitles on just so that I know how uh, character names are spelled. And there are a lot of things that get by me sometimes in, without subtitles or closed captioning. And I'm glad I watched it that way because there was a lot that uh, Peter Frankenstein said that I don't think I would have understood 
uh, to be candid, if I didn't have the subtitles on. Um, but having said that, it's Peter's character that helps the monster be nuanced and complicated and um, sort of ambiguous because on more than one occasion, it becomes clear that the monster had visited Peter and that the two had struck up a kind of relationship somehow. So that, um, and obviously, uh, Peter lived to tell so that there was no harm implied at all in these clandestine meetings. And then when we get to the end and that the act three and the action reaches a fever pitch, um, you know, the monster has ample opportunity to exact his revenge and kill little Peter, either by throwing him into the sulfur pit or just, you know, tearing him apart. And he chooses not to. And in that, that's the final sort of sympathetic note that we have for Frankenstein's monster is that he clearly has it in mind to off Peter. It's when he rips the nursery rhyme book apart. You know what he's about to go do or what he's thought of to do, and he can't bring himself to do it. And so in the end, you know, we find the monster finds his humanity and sadly is still destroyed, even though he made a, a, a good, not an evil decision. And that's mirrored or reflected in Wolf Frankenstein, who's also being torn apart. He's trying to decide between the family man and the mad scientist, and he chooses what is good, and he gets to live. And that's sort of the tragic story at the heart of Son of Frankenstein. So, all that is to say, I love this movie. I love the performances. I think Lionel Atwill is brilliant. I think Lugosi is brilliant. I think uh, Karloff gives an epic performance in his last monster appearance. And Basil Rathbone also just expertly does this gradual shift from simmer to rolling boil that's very believable. And uh, we're really happy, I think, at the end to see him make uh, the best choice of going in the direction of family man, uh, husband and father, as opposed to giving into the darkest impulses uh, that are in him because of his father's work. So, by all means, highly recommended. Son of Frankenstein. Uh, see it on Blu-ray if you can. See it on a, a decent sound system if possible. As I mentioned before, it really brings to sonic life that very important thunderstorm near the beginning and also uh, the scientific experiments in the middle of the film and then, of course, in the third act, sort of the the bombastic score is, you know, helps to increase the tension and all of the great action sequences that take place there towards the end. All right, that just about does it for today's study session. But before you go, I did want to share with you the resources that I relied on in preparing for today's presentation. And that starts with a rather large and attractive hardcover book entitled Golden Horrors, an illustrated critical filmography, 1931 to 1939, by Brian Sen, S-E-N-N, -N, published by... McFarland and Company in 1996. Also, a couple different works by Gregory William Mank, who is a mainstay at Monster Bash. I've had the pleasure of hearing him speak on a number of occasions. Uh, the two books that I spent some time with uh, in relation to Son of Frankenstein, uh, the first is entitled Hollywood's Maddest Doctors, a biography of Lionel Atwill, Colin Clive, and George Zuko. That is copyright 1998, published by Midnight Marquee Press. And Manx's classic in the Frankenstein field, It's Alive, the classic cinema saga of Frankenstein, 
Once again, that's Gregory William Mank. This was published in 1981, and it was put out, um, let's see, by A.S. Barnes & Company, Inc., San Diego and New York. And if you have access to the periodical Monsters from the Vault, there's a really entertaining article in number 9, volume 17, entitled Hated, Blasphemed, and Condemned. It is kind of a point-by-point response to those who are detractors of Son of Frankenstein. Um, I am not one of them, which is probably obvious at this point, but it's really fun to read an article by someone who I think enjoys the film as much as I do, and I would have to say uh, Greg Mank and Sen both, I think, are also very much uh, pro-Son of Frankenstein. So that is, um, you know, I think as a, as a fan, I prefer, you know, to accentuate the positive, and, and those writers certainly do that uh, with regard to this film. Well, that's another monster study group in the books. If you would like, uh, there is a social media presence that is maintained. Um, I would suggest Instagram as the most updated vehicle uh, for information regarding monster study group. Uh, It's just monster underscore study underscore group. And you get there both... uh, previews in the story about upcoming shows and then the posts have to do with both monster kid radio and the uh, beta capsule reviews that i do and then of course for the actual episodes of msg um, such as son of kong and now son of frankenstein it's the son of summer i'm excited about uh, this the show that's going to post two weeks from today it's one of our mystery episodes And so I will just leave you to guess as to what it might be, given the fact that you already know Son of Dracula and Son of Godzilla are in the pipeline, so it's not going to be either of those. And I hope you have a little bit of fun trying to guess what the possibility of the next show is going to be. That'll post two weeks from today. Finally, just a reminder that There is a place where you can write a message to me, and if you are so inclined, I'd be happy to share that in one of the episodes in the future. The email address is monsterstudygroup at outlook.com. I would really welcome your feedback and your inquiries and information. Thanks once again for joining me during the sun of summer. I hope it's been fun so far, and I look forward to... uh, handful of more episodes that'll come out between July and August. Until next time, keep studying monsters. <laughs>